Welcome back to Cherry Avenue True Crime Podcast. Thank you for listening and thank you for telling a friend. And if you haven't yet, please go to your podcast app and leave us a good review. We appreciate it. It does help. We're going to get into this episode right away today. Talent Torn Away, Phil Hartman. Phil Hartman was a comic genius. His stint on Saturday Night Live was nothing less than amazing. His impressions were so good. I will give you some YouTube links on my social media accounts at the end of this episode. So if you haven't seen them, you will know. And even if you have, it has probably been a long time and you will definitely enjoy seeing them again. There is no doubt of the incredible talent that this man had. On the morning of May 28, 1998, there was a 911 call placed. It was a man's voice. Hi, this is um 5000 block of Encino Boulevard and um I think there's been a shooting here. Do you see a victim? the dispatcher asks. Yes, the caller says. The dispatcher tells him to hold for paramedics and to stay on the line. The fire dispatcher comes on and asks how many victims. Just one, the mail caller says. What part of the body? I think around the head and neck. The person who shot him, is he around? Yeah, she's his wife. Fire dispatcher. The wife shot him and they're both there. Yeah. He says this in such a sad voice the dispatcher can barely hear. Hello, sir? Yes. He says it louder so he can hear. So was this on purpose, or was this an accident, or what, sir? Do you know what happened? I have no idea. She came from that house, and she was drunk. She said she had killed her husband, and I didn't believe her. Okay, and they're both there right now. Yeah, right. The caller repeats the address. We're going to send the police out there, okay? And where's the weapon now? It's in my hand, okay? Because she brought it to my house. Dispatcher, what is your name? My name is Ron. Ron Douglas. At 6.20 a.m., police responded to the call. Police were actually in the house, removing the children when they heard another shot. Hartman was found dead in his bed. His wife was nearby in an apparent suicide. Lieutenant Anthony Alba, LAPD spokesman, said, She apparently shot herself as officers were in the house, removing the second child. This was in a news clip from outside the house. Their children, six and nine years old, were not hurt. It was reported that a man had come out of the house with the oldest child, Sean. The man was holding a plastic bag containing a gun. He told the police he was the man who made the 911 call. He was a friend of Bryn's, and she had told him that she had shot her husband and then begged him to come back to the house with her. She had given him the gun that she had said she had shot Phil with. He told them that this was the one in the plastic bag that he handed over. His name was Ron Douglas. He knew Bryn from before she was married to Phil, 
They had a relationship which was long over. Phil was 49 and Bryn 40. Phil was shot three times, once in the head, once in the neck, and once to the chest. He was in a t-shirt and a pair of boxers. There were no signs of a struggle. Detective Raja said he was in a position as if he was sound asleep. Bryn was shot once, and there was soot and stippling around her lips, looking as if the weapon was shot inside her mouth. Bryn was on her back, propped up by pillows. Detective Braja said the gun was not in Bryn's hand when detectives came on the scene. Now, first responders had said they thought Bryn shot herself while they were in the home trying to get the children, and just moments before they entered the bedroom where she and Phil were. This was a high-profile case, so as Detective Braja said, they had to be very thorough and make sure they didn't miss anything. There were several cans of empty beer around. They checked to see, and it did seem like it smelled fresh to them, as if it had been drank recently. There was one in the living room, one in the laundry room, and others, sort of scattered throughout the house. There were prescription drugs in Bryn's nightstand. According to Detective Raja, the gun was on the dresser and a cartridge had been fired. It was not in Bryn's hand where he would expect it, if this was a murder-suicide. The relationship between Ron Douglas and Bryn Hartman was long over, but detectives did have to look into him. Rarely in a murder-suicide are three people there, with one still alive. They had to make sure this was not a double homicide. Ron told them that Bryn came over to visit the night before. She had called him asking if she could come over. He said she did, and they talked for a couple hours, and then she left. Hours later, she called him from home, and she was crying and asking him if she could come back over to his house. She was very upset and telling him that she needed him and had to come over. When she got to his house, he said she was very intoxicated and she wasn't making a lot of sense. She told him that she had killed Phil. He said that she was so messed up he didn't believe her. He thought she was just too drunk to even know what was going on. He made her tea and tried to get her to drink water to sober her up. She went into his bathroom and vomited, and she kept telling him she had done it. Then she spilled out her purse, and the gun fell out. Ron finally agreed to go back to her house with her to find out what was going on. Bryn drove ahead of him, and Ron followed in his car. When he got there, he saw Phil's body. He sees that he is actually lying there dead in the bed. He couldn't believe it was true. He went to call 911. In the 911 call, Bryn can be heard crying in the background. The phone records corroborated what Ron told them about Bryn making contact with him and when. A neighbor of Ron's was also able to confirm when Bryn pulled up the second time and when they both left. They asked Ron when was the last time he was intimate with Bryn. He told them he could not even remember. They did a sexual assault kit on Bryn to make sure, and it came back completely negative. Autopsy results showed that Bryn had a gunshot wound inside of the mouth with an exit wound at the top of her head. 
This suggested a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Brins were the only fingerprints found on the gun on the dresser. They were able to clear Ron Douglas. They were also able to find out how the gun ended up on the dresser. One of the first responding officers removed the gun from her hand in case she was not dead, thus disarming her. He had removed it from her hand and put it on the dresser. As much as everyone would like the crime scene untouched, safety and life is first. If someone is still alive and needs medical attention, or if you believe has even the slightest chance of being saved, then things are going to be moved. The same thing goes for a weapon, that if they have even the slightest chance of being alive and are holding a weapon, they need to be disarmed. Phil had always had guns. For Bryn's 40th birthday, Phil had given her the gun that she would commit suicide with. So as it is determined to be murder-suicide, what happened? To really answer that, we need to go back to the beginning. Back to before Phil and Bryn met. Phil Hartman was born in Brantford, Ontario, Canada, the same town that the hockey legend Wayne Gretzky came from. He was the middle child out of eight kids. His family moved to the U.S. when he was 10 years old. Phil was voted as class clown in high school. He went to Santa Monica College and then moved on to California State University, Northridge. He got a degree in graphic arts. He was a graphic artist who designed album covers for 70s rock bands like America. You might have heard of one of their songs, A Horse With No Name, and also the band Poco, or Paco, whose famous song was probably Crazy Love. By 30, he had moved on from graphic artist to full-time comedy. In 1975, he joined the Groundlings, an improv group. The first time he was there, he was just in the audience watching the show. They asked an audience member to come up and work with them. He was so good, they asked him to join the troupe. One of the members of the Groundlings was Paul Rubens, who developed a character, Pee Wee Herman. Phil played a character in the show that was developed around the character of Pee Wee Herman, Captain Carl. Later on, they would work on the writing for a movie for that. In 1982, he married Lisa Strain. By all reports, he was head over heels for her. They had a small wedding as they were both working in Hollywood, but hadn't made the big time yet. The marriage doesn't last long, though. Lisa said that there was something in him that you couldn't reach. They remained good friends. Bryn Hartman was originally Vicki Jo Omdahl. She later started using the name Bryn in Los Angeles. She was from Thief River Falls, Minnesota. She was beautiful, blonde, and very popular. She had aspirations to be a model and an actress. In 1975, her first marriage, when she was just 17, was to her high school sweetheart. In 1980, she ended all that and headed to Hollywood. She had a hard time when she first moved out there. She went there to become an actress, but wasn't having a lot of success. She did do a lot of modeling, especially swimwear. She changed her look and also changed her name to Bryn. She was said to have dated some famous men. She did date Rob Reiner for a while. 
Rob Reiner was the director of the movie North, in which Bryn had her only movie role. The empty promises that were made to her in L.A. wore her down, and she started to drink and do cocaine, mainly cocaine. According to her friends from that time period, she developed a very heavy cocaine use. Susan Stadner was a friend from those days. Susan would eventually become a substance abuse counselor. She thought that some of Bryn's issues were with self-esteem. She talks about the symptoms of cocaine abuse. One of those is you end up with men who have cocaine. And so you end up having sex with men you wouldn't have pizza with if you were sober. By the early 1980s, she was only 22, and she spent her nights with alcohol, cocaine, all-night parties, and men. Bryn's world was not great. She went to rehab. Her brother talked to her about the cocaine use, and he said she had a problem with it and did too much of it. She went to Fargo, he said, and did some treatments. When she got out, a friend said she developed another sort of habit, plastic surgery. They both had some nips and tucks done, and maybe some other things. So she had already gone through rehab for booze and cocaine before they got married. Some people said she was unpredictable and troubled. Phil knew all of this, and yet they still got married. Some of his friends said he was at an age where he was ready to settle down, and he did want to have some kids. He fell for Bryn, and the timing was right. They seemed to click and get along well at first. For Bryn, there was the added benefit of how Phil's career was taking off. It was said that Phil did tell her he would help her get acting roles. She did get a small role in the 1994 movie North, and a small role in an episode of the show Third Rock from the Sun in 1996. Their marriage was far from perfect, though. Some friends of Phil's said Bryn had trouble controlling her anger. She would get loud and aggressive, and Phil was not like that. In addition to drugs, Hartman's News Radio co-star Joe Rogan said in a 2014 interview, she was a failed actress who deeply resented Phil's success, and as he became more and more successful, the relationship became more and more contentious. Joe Rogan spoke about his friend Phil more on his podcast. He was talking about which type of couple you would most want to be around, the couple that is stabbing at each other, or the ideal couple who are making you feel like your relationship isn't so great. Joe said the ideal couple. He wants to be around happy people. He went on to say that there is nothing worse than being around two people who insult each other slyly in public. He then said that Phil Hartman's wife used to do that all the time. He said that they had a very combative relationship and that she used to talk shit about Phil in front of them. He did say rather sadly that you are not supposed to talk ill of the dead, but when they kill your friend and then kill themselves, well, you know, Joe loved his friend who was taken from everyone, so it's understandable. Phil seemed to have those kind of friendships. He kept his good friends. Joe was on a TV show called News Radio with Phil, and as far as I can find, that was when they became good friends. Listen to the episode where Joe talks about the brilliance of Phil Hartman 
You can find it on YouTube by searching Joe Rogan, Phil Hartman. A lot of people said that about Phil. He was brilliantly talented and wickedly smart. In 1986, Phil Hartman made it on Saturday Night Live. He was 38, with a cast that included John Lovitz, Dana Carvey, and Dennis Miller. He did so many amazing characters on SNL. Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan, Johnny Cash, Frank Sinatra, televangelist Jim Baker, and Ed McMahon. There's almost nothing he couldn't do. I was a huge fan of his in the Saturday Night Live days. He could do the best Bill Clinton, bar none. Bryn would come by the set of SNL quite often, and she made some friends there. She did try and get some screen time. On the opening shots, there is one of Phil sitting at a table with a blonde woman. The blonde woman is Bryn. She is looking at Phil, and all you can see is her hair and a bit of the side of her face. She had tried to turn towards the camera to get her face on screen, but the director told her, no, just look at Phil. So that was as much as she got to be on the show. In 1988, at the end of Phil's second season on SNL, they had their first child, Sean. By all accounts, Phil takes to being a father right away and loves it. Lisa Strain, Phil's wife before, sent a congrats card with a letter saying she was so happy for them, and if they ever needed a babysitter, she was there for them. Lisa said she got a letter back from Bryn that was scary and included a death threat. It boiled down to, don't you ever get near me or my family or I will hurt you. Do not be in touch with Phil or me or you will be sorry. It was two pages long. Lisa called Phil about the shocking letter and he told her, you should have seen the letter she wanted to send you. She is very intense. Lisa said she didn't speak to him or see him for many years after that. It's at this time they get their dream house in Encino. They are still bi-coastal, with an apartment in New York for SNL season, and the big house in California. At SNL, they called him the glue. He held everyone together. He not only did an amazing job acting and with the improv, he also helped the other actors look good, it was said. When Bill Clinton becomes president, one of Phil's most famous and most popular impressions are born. The sketches that they did at this time were hilarious. It's also around this time Chris Farley is interviewed, saying that Phil Hartman was the glue on SNL. Phil is definitely a star at this point. In 1992, their second child, Bergen, was born. Phil and Bryn are loving parents, and they shoot lots of sweet home movies. Phil is interviewed saying that, without a question, the thing that makes him happiest is being a father. It's absolutely heartbreaking to watch him say that, because I believe him. On one evening, at 10 p.m., Bryn showed up in a black cocktail dress at the set of SNL. Phil went down to meet her at the elevators. Some of the group of SNL could see them down the corridor, and they could tell they were having an animated argument. A former writer said she remembered walking into the restroom and seeing Bryn snorting coke, and she offered her some. She declined, but she didn't think much about it because it was SNL, and they were in New York. 
One day, a makeup artist from SNL said Phil climbed into the makeup chair and was just shaking after an argument with Bryn that he had had in his dressing room. He asked Phil what was wrong. Phil told him that it looked like his wife was going to divorce him. He said it was his schedule, that he was working too much, and he was never home, and his wife didn't have a career. He and Bryn then go on the Howard Stern Show, which was on TV at the time. Howard asks Bryn about being a swimsuit model, and Howard comments on how beautiful Bryn is, etc. To friends, this interview on Stern was Phil trying to raise Bryn's profile. Besides SNL, Phil is doing voices for the TV show The Simpsons. Phil's star was definitely on the rise, and he became busier and busier. He got huge payments for doing commercials for Cheetos, Foot Locker, and McDonald's. They paid him something like a million two for the McDonald's commercial. He couldn't believe he was making that kind of money for that. It's around this time he started buying some of the pricier toys. He bought a Ferrari, a small plane, and another boat. He started with a small Boston whaler, got a bigger Boston whaler, and then got a small yacht. Friends said he was spending a lot of time away from the house and away from his wife with these toys. In 1994, Phil ended his career with SNL. It had been eight seasons. On Phil's last show, they did a send-off song, So Long, Farewell, from The Sound of Music. At the very end, there were just two characters remaining on stage, Phil Hartman and Chris Farley. In the next few years, they would both be gone. For Saturday Night Live, Phil was developing a show that was going to be his own, and he had told Bryn he would work parts in it for her. It was to be a variety show called The Phil Show, a sketch comedy show. Bryn, of course, had been after him to get her some acting work. He also tried to develop a sitcom that would have a role for her in it. Neither the variety show nor the sitcom made it to the pilot stage. He ended up taking a role in a new show called News Radio in 1995. Donna Kaufman, the main writer for the sitcom that he was trying to develop, said Bryn called her and she was very upset. Donna tried to be helpful by telling her maybe they would work in something for her on news radio, that there would be a role in that show for her. But Bryn said no. She said he was doing it because he didn't want to work with her. That's why. And her substance abuse had really not gone away. She would stop and there would be a period of peace, and then she would indulge. Mother's Day 1997, Bryn had gone out and was apparently in very bad shape when she came home the next morning. Phil was furious. He insisted that Bryn go to rehab, and she did. But she relapsed again a few months later. Andy Dick was one of the actors on news radio, he was at a Christmas party at Phil's house when Bryn and one of her friends asked him if he had some cocaine. He said sure. He didn't know she had a problem with it, he said. She went back to rehab, but didn't stay very long, five to six days. She missed the kids. She didn't want to be away from them. She felt terrible about the relapse. Phil was getting very stressed about the cocaine and alcohol abuse. 
Phil was getting very stressed about the cocaine and alcohol abuse. That tragic night, Bryn had met her friend Christine Zander, who was a producer for Third Rock from the Sun at the time. They met for dinner and drinks. Zander said Bryn did talk about the fact that her marriage was not doing so well. They had a commiserating sort of talk over drinks. Zander said Bryn had offered her some cocaine that night, but Zander declined. Bryn had been in rehab at least twice, but here she was drinking and doing cocaine. After the dinner, Bryn tried to get Xander to go to club with her, but Xander said she couldn't stay out that late. Bryn then went over to an old friend's house, Ron Douglas. Ron said she was in a pretty good mood when she came over, and they had a nice talk for a few hours, and then Bryn went home. Hours later, as we know, Bryn called Ron again. This time, she was crying and telling him she had to come back over. He had had no idea what happened. He just knew she sounded drunk and was acting crazy. So she had a cocktail of antidepressants, which by all account was still fairly new to her system, alcohol, and cocaine. She had a marriage that was not great. She had dreams she was starting to realize, or maybe finally had realized, might never happen. And on top of her marriage not being great, she knew there was a chance it was going to end that the marriage would fail too. That evening, Phil got home while Bryn was still out, and he told the nanny to go home. When the nanny left, he was playing with the kids. Phil spent time with the children, put them to bed, and then went to bed himself. You do have to wonder why, though, if Phil knew that Bryn was so volatile, why did he give her a gun? And before he gave her that gun, that he gave her for her birthday, there was already at least one more that was kept where it could easily be gotten by Bryn. So you do have to wonder, as Phil did know about Bryn's problems with drugs and alcohol, why he thought having the handguns easily available was a good idea. So Bryn's mind is addled by cocaine and alcohol, and she has a relatively new prescription drug in her system. She knows that Phil will divorce her if she continues to do cocaine, but for some reason, she continues to do so. Phil is upset with the way that she has been behaving while under the influence of these substances. He has threatened to divorce her and get custody of the children for their own protection. Because of the coke and alcohol, she cannot think clearly. If she could, she would realize that if she were to get herself completely cleaned up and she was able to maintain that, then she would most likely get custody of the kids herself, or at least shared custody. She would be divorcing a rich celebrity, and she would not be out on the streets. Phil works a lot. She has been a good mother when sober, and she would be able to do so. She would probably have the kids most of the time. But she's not thinking clearly. She is thinking her kids will be taken away from her. Her lifestyle will change. The thought of losing her children was probably too much. So an incredibly irrational decision to shoot and kill Phil must have entered her mind. How long she actually thought about it, though, no one knows. But again, her brain is all mixed up. She is in a blind sort of panic, I imagine. So she can't see that would not be a solution of any kind. She would go to jail. 
and not only lose her kids, but also take both parents away from her children. She ends up running to Ron for help, but I think that shows even more clearly how messed up and completely panicked her brain was. When she gets back to the house with Ron, and he is calling the police, she might have then realized she was going to jail, and then she shot herself in order not to. Or she felt so horrible and guilty that she had killed her husband, she then shot herself. Either way, it's something she should have realized earlier, that she would have to go to jail or kill herself in order not to go to jail. But the condition of her mind, under the influence of the substances and the panic, was so that she could not see the long-term effects of her decision to shoot her husband. She couldn't see that either way, her children would lose both parents. It was most likely the furthest from what she wanted for her children, and yet it happened that way. It's just all so sad. Bryn's brother said he lost a sister who was a wonderful person and a brother-in-law who was wonderful, and it was very hard. The kids were raised by Bryn's sister after the tragedy. They were just six and nine at the time. The family says they are both doing well. They say that Bryn and Phil would be very proud of the people they have grown into. I was watching for the research, a clip on YouTube where Phil is on the Dennis Miller show and he tells the sweetest story about Bergen being born and how he cried every time he told the story. He tears up again on this show. It's beautiful and so sad to watch. Sad that Bergen had him for only six years, and Sean only had him for nine. Stay tuned, if you would like, for the historical portion of this podcast. If you are a regular listener, you probably know that we start out with very old newspaper clippings with crimes that are very similar to the one that we just covered. However, today we are going to start out with one from 1998, and it is about Phil Hartman. We will move back in time and cover other crimes that are similar to this. So the May 29th, 1998 just happened. Wife reportedly kills actor Phil Hartman. This is from Hollywood. It just doesn't make sense, said actor Steve Gutenberg, who, like Phil Hartman and Pee Wee Herman, got his show business break with the Los Angeles comedy troupe, The Groundlings. Whenever I saw Phil and his wife, they were always happy. Both of them were always giving and kind. Any of the other details are none of my business. Phil Hartman joined the Saturday Night Live cast in 1986 that then included John Lovitz, Dennis Miller, and Dana Carvey. In his eight seasons, he did impersonations of upwards of 70 famous people, including Ed McMahon, Bill Clinton, Jimmy Swaggart, Phil Donahue, and Frank Sinatra. Phil Hartman's death is the latest in a string of tragedies to strike Saturday Night Live alumni. John Belushi, who went from the original 1975 cast to stardom in movies such as Animal House, 
died of a drug overdose at the age of 33 in 1982. Gilda Radner, a fellow cast member, died of ovarian cancer in 1989 at age 42. Chris Farley, who appeared on the show in the 1990s and in the movie Tommy Boy, died of a drug overdose in December at age 33. Several years ago, after he left the sketch comedy show, Bryn Hartman said, We have more of a normal lifestyle now. Phil was blessed with a tremendous gift for creating characters that made people laugh, said Don Olheimer, West Coast president of NBC. But more importantly, everyone who had the pleasure of working with Phil knows that he was a man of tremendous warmth, a true professional, and a loyal friend who will be deeply missed. Born Philip Edward Hartman in Ontario, Canada, Hartman was one in a line of Canadian-born comedians to find success in the United States, including the late John Candy and SNL veteran Dan Aykroyd. Unlike them, Phil Hartman grew up in America, first in Connecticut, then in Southern California. At Westchester High School on Los Angeles' west side, he was the class clown, already doing impersonations of John Wayne, Jack Benny, and Lyndon Johnson. After high school, he studied art and wound up in graphic design doing album covers for rock bands. Drawn to stand-up comedy, Philip Hartman, in 1975, joined the Groundlings in Los Angeles. The next one is back almost 100 years ago, April 28th, 1927, and it is Hollywood, California. Wife kills movie actor mate as climax to wild gin party. Breaking under hours of continual questioning, Mrs. Sarah Carrick, film double, confessed to police here Wednesday night that she shot and killed her husband, Tom Carrick, motion picture actor of Western roles. Her confession, mumbled and partly incoherent, claimed that a revolver she had in her hand was discharged accidentally when Mrs. Anita Isabel, a member of the alleged drinking party in Carrick's apartment, attempted to wrest the gun from her hands. Shot during the party. Mrs. Carrick was booked on a charge of suspicion of murder and four other parties to the shooting were held as material witnesses. Carrick, former cowboy of Wyoming, was shot to death Wednesday morning during what police termed one of Hollywood's wildest and loudest parties. All those held confessed to drinking. And you have to understand, uh, back then, prohibition was going on. It was from 1920 to 1933, and drinking alcohol was illegal. So all of these people confessed to drinking, and it says in the, I will continue in the paper, it says, and it was not until 14 hours after the slaying that statements could be obtained from any of them. Mrs. Carrick herself did not know her husband was dead until police broke the news to her hours after she had been arrested. She admitted, however, she had gone after a gun to shoot him when she found him in a bedroom with another woman of the party. She asserted the gun was discharged accidentally when Mrs. Anita Isabel attempted to take it from her. In addition to Mrs. Carrick, those held were Henry and Anita Isabel and Iris Burns, all motion picture extra workers, and Joe Hunt. 
Miss Burns was the alleged recipient of the advances said to have induced the shooting. The next one is Actor Slays Wife, Then Kills Self, and this is August 6, 1928, Hollywood, California. A 15-year-old vaudeville partnership between husband and wife was broken here today in a tragedy which police called a case of murder and attempted suicide. Jack A. Wood, vaudeville trick shoot artist, shot and killed his wife, Mrs. Nellie Wood, with the rifle he had used on the stage. He then turned the gun upon himself. Physicians said he probably would not recover. A daughter of Mrs. Wood by a former marriage witnessed the shooting. Police were told that dissension arose between the partners after the Woods had left the vaudeville circuits and attained only moderate success in motion pictures here. And I think that is the... Well, now here's the last one. It's a, it's a weird one, too. June 16th, 1929. Wife kills actor, fails at suicide. When Frank Helms, 29, retired song and dance man, told his wife, former vaudeville trooper, he would have to sell her trained pony for funds, she shot and killed him at their cottage home near here today. Then she leaned over his body and whispered, Goodbye, old boy. I'm going with you. And pulled the trigger of the gun placed near her heart. It was empty. She surrendered to officers and was held on a murder charge. And that's it for today. Please remember to hit subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. It's free to subscribe. Um, and please do remember to give us a good review if you have it in your heart to do so. I would appreciate it. And as always, please be safe.